I like your your riffing. Mm-hmm. I'm imp- I'm improvising like Curb. John saw he saw the word other people, and he said, "You know what? Let me just add a little flavor to this personages." <laughs> That's my Miles Davis. You put a little <laughs> on yeah, it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Here's the mystery of Thomas Pynchon. Thomas Pynchon loved this book almost as much as he loves cameras. A screaming comes across the sky. It has happened before, but there is nothing to compare it to the now. To the now. A podcast about Thomas Pynchon's gravity's rainbow and other inquiries directly related to the text. To the now. To the now. Here's the mystery of Thomas Pynchon. Episode 13, covering Gravity's Rainbow, Part 4, Whatever's Left of the Book. It's finished now. It's over. Follow the bouncing ball. This, as Jim Morrison, the alcoholic lizard king of baseless Los Angeles gloom rock, once cooed, is the end. Mm. The end of everything? As Doris Day, the mother of record producer Terry Melcher, whose sinister ties to the hippie era ending Manson murders is well documented elsewhere, once sang, <laughs> perhaps, perhaps, perhaps. And cake. They covered that. Like a previous chapter in this section of the book, the final section is chopped up into little mini sections with their own headings, which barely help to situate the action. We begin in the Rakatenstadt, which stretches impossibly high into the heavens. An elevator operator slash tour guide named Mindy Bluth from Carbon City, Illinois, explains the vertical solution, organizing society ever upward. She's hassled by a bunch of know-it-all heckler tourists who want to talk about the rocket. But in this rocket city of the future, the rocket has become taboo. And speaking of taboos, that's a classic podcast segue. Yep, I like that. We cut over to Thanats and Little Ludwig who are watching a zone Hitler youth choir in skin-tight lederhosen. Mm. There's a lot of uh, language about how their uh, butts look in the lederhosen. Yeah. Okay, I'm not mm-hmm. getting into all that. Thanets is wrapping Ludwig on the butt cheeks and waxing on the subject of sado-anarchism. Mm-hmm. S&M, Thanets philosophizes, is verboten not because it is a dirty secret, but because it is an essential component in the functioning of the structure, capital T, capital S, and cannot be, quote, wasted in private sex. Elsewhere, at some other time, the Zone Herrero have made it to Lunenburg Heath. The 0001 is ready for liftoff. There are worries that they might be losing their nerve in the final moment as the rocket is finally assembled and fit to launch. Finally. And speaking of assembly and its opposite, Slothrop's dispersal is discussed, as is the notion that parts of him are taking shape as other people or personages throughout the zone, like scattered sparks. He is supposed to be at Lunenburg, too, to stop the Herrero. Instead, he's everywhere and nowhere. Only Seaman Bodine, who gifted Slothrop a scrap of a shirt soaked in John Dillinger's blood, can even see his old friend, but even that ability seems to be fading. We also learn that Slothrop was last seen or heard of in the early 70s, rumored to be gracing the cover of an album by an English rock band called The Fool, which you'll remember is the major arcana of the tarot with which Slothrop is often identified. 
We also learn of his mantra, the object of life is to make sure you die a weird death. Surely being dispersed like sparks in the wind qualifies. Somewhere else in the zone, Zhabajev, Chicharin's former sidekick, gathers a collection of village idiots, hoping to be recognized as their own independent state. They indulge in wine rushes, getting high by injecting wine. It's a gravity-defying high, with the feeling compared to being stuck in the ceiling of an elevator as it rockets upwards. This altered state trickles down into the text, which fractures into a series of disconnected episodes, which we'll run through real quick. Real quick. Yep. Okay, first, the occupation of Mingeboro. Mm-hmm. Slotham's hometown, and also that of Lloyd Nipple, the fattest kid in Mingeboro, right. has been set upon by soldiers, either invaders or U.S. troops returning home. There are flashbacks to Slotham's pre-war innocence, and we kind of get a sense that he will never, ever make it back there again. Nope, he won't get back to the Shire. No. Then we go to back in Der Platz. Mm-hmm. Gustav- do you want to remind us, sorry, do you want to remind us what Der Platz is for those who might have forgotten? Yeah, Der Platz is like Sour Bummer's HQ in Berlin. It's like a, it's like a housing project yeah. or a bunch of like... A hovel. Dopers, dope. Yeah, dope fiends. Yeah. Uh, hang out. Mm-hmm. Back in Der Platz, Gustav has returned from the cannibal party to smoke hash out of a kazoo. Ex-Nazi rocket scientists have by now determined that a kazoo makes for the ideal hash pipe. Mm-hmm. He has unscrewed Byron the bulb and screws him into the kazoo, which he fits perfectly. Meanwhile, Sour Bummer is screening a new Gerhard von Goll movie, or rather dailies from a production that will never be finished, called New Dope. The movie screens exclusively under the rug of his hideout, which is beset upon by dopers, feebs, and sex freaks. In the spirit of anarchism, nobody can be turned away. All are welcome, or at least tolerated. What's a feeb? A feeb is a word that Pynchon uses all the time. He says tankers and feebs. I don't know. Let me look it up. I don't know what it is. A foolish or stupid Persian. Persian. Uh, a foolish or stupid Persian. Walter Matthau. Yeah. Yeah. Then we move on to Weissman's Tarot, uh, in which Weissman's Tarot cards are laid down. I don't want to get too into this. Uh, if you're super interested in it, you can refer to our bonus episode, Weissman's Tarot. Suffice to say, the reading is not altogether cheery and suggests that his best laid plans may fall apart grandly. And hey, speaking of best laid plans, we cut to... Spring on the Heath. <laughs> Dateline, the Heath. <laughs> Time and space of the Quint Zip launch. A horse looks on, a sacrifice is beginning. I like your prose here. Staccato. It's, yeah. <laughs> Hemingway. Gottfried is dressed in white and bound like the biblical Isaac. He is set inside a shroud or womb made of Impol XG which is itself part of the rocket machinery. So, mystery solved. (laughs) The Eskarot is Gottfried himself. Ah. He's also fitted with an earpiece through which you can hear Weissman. A group of fictional heroes, Superman, Plastic Man, Submariner, Philip Marlowe, etc., attempt to thwart the launch, but they arrive too late. We catch our last glimpse of Pointsman, who is shriveling away in some government ministry all hopes of a Nobel have vanished. Pathetic. That's editorializing on my part. Yeah, this is. I'm reading John's prose here, so yeah. if you have an I, issue with that. I don't think it's prose, it's just writing. Same thing, buddy. There's a riff on a standardized rocket countdown. Ten, nine, eight, seven, and so on. And how it's apparently been lifted from a Fritz Lang flick. Apparently, Fritz Lang was the originator of the countdown. Frau in der Monde, I believe the film is. Mm. There's also talk about how the 10987 countdown represents the Kabbalistic journey through the Sephir rock. 
which are the ten emanations or attributes of the infinite in Jewish mysticism. This is all explained by a radical scholar named Steve Edelman, who, as far as we can tell, is not a real guy. In his guide to the book, Steven Weisenberger suggests that he's a stand-in for LSD guru and 60s counterculture mascot, Timothy Leary. Then we flash forward, or sideways, or in our case, in the year 2024, back to around the time of the book's publication. We meet Richard M. Jalub, a manager of a movie theater in L.A. called The Orpheus. A journalist is garrisoned with Jalub, who drives around the freeways in a Volkswagen, that great Volkish automobile leveler. Jalub complains about Edelman and about the sounds of harmonicas in the movie theater lineup, and also kazoos. In the early 70s America being depicted, it seems both harmonicas and kazoos have been outlawed, along with certain chord progressions. Is the harmonica blasting a lingering trace of Slothrop? And remember, Orpheus too played a harp. Jalub fantasizes about being asphyxiated with a dry cleaning bag, a dark fantasy with traces of Imipolex G. His car is full of canned cheers, applause, boos, and sounds of protests, which he can switch to at will. As he and the reporter drive, a siren goes off. Not the cops, something more sinister. A bomb, perhaps? Or a rocket? A screaming coming across the sky? Whoa. Back to the heath. The quint zip is launched. Or is it? There is some great ascent. It may be the rocket taking off, blasting off, pointed true north, or it may be Gottfried, dying his soul rocketing out of his frail, boyish form, shrouded in eroticized plastic. Back to Jalub's Orpheus Theater. The crowd is restless, the screen is blank and white. Then a familiar face, but whose face? A rocket dangles overhead in its final Delta T before impact. It seems frozen there. What rocket is this even? The 00000, the 00001, a nuclear bomb, or some other idea of a rocket? Who's to say? Facing their presumed annihilation, the crowd is led in a final fateful ditty, one originally sung by William Slothrop, about a light bringing down the tower and shining on the preterite, about a soul in every stone. Sing along, now everybody. I Uh, read the news today, oh boy. um, Okay, what do we want to talk about? About a lucky little German boy who was shoved in soon inside of a motherfucking <laughs> rocket. <laughs> um, okay. There are things that I think are interesting. Like, you know, it seems so random and strange to me that Seaman Bodine would gift Slothrop a bloodstained rag from John Dillinger. Yeah, well, he was at the theater. So first of all, I think this is doing a couple things. Dillinger comes up a few times in the book. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there's this idea of like, Pinchon really valorizes the idea of the kind of like badass folk hero, which you could totally see Dillinger as, but also the idea of like a total public mania, which is what's described in that section. Like Bodine was at the theater in Chicago. Mm-hmm. He tells Slaughter this earlier when they're hanging out at the Chicago bar, I believe, which is Sour Bum- one of Sour Bummer's places. But anyways, that he, he, w- he saw Dillinger get shot and it's like a total mania. Like people are dipping into the blood and like going crazy and mm-hmm. pulling their hair out yeah. and how it was this kind of like weird group thing. So at that point, almost as if it was like the Shroud of Turin or whatever, yeah. Seaman Bodie and like grabbed this piece of bloody cloth. Yeah. And I think the fact that he gave it to Slothrop, you know, 
suggests that within the narrative of the novel, Slothrop has become this same sort of like folk hero. Yeah. People about whom other characters kind of like whisper. Now, why is Slothrop a folk hero? Is it because he kind of disperses or disappears or whatever, and then you can impart onto him anything that you want? Yes, but I also think in a more basic way, it's because despite his own feebish, tankish, foolish, uh, personality traits and tendencies mm -hmm. he managed to defy the they system yeah. and he managed to sort of not execute the plan that was kind of subconsciously implanted him or that he was being pointed towards yeah so even though slothrop is like this kind of corndog layabout who just wants to like get stoned and bang all day mm -hmm. uh he is within this book and within a sort of pinchonian cosmos legitimately heroic i think yeah yeah. And I mean, again, I think that part of to talk about this kind of like meta textual thing again, part of the thing with the dispersal is that Slothrop is also uh, dispersing from the narrative. Yeah. It's as if Pinchon himself can no longer control him or write him into the story because he no longer exists even in that capacity. Yeah. And the fact that Seaman Bodine can still kind of recognize him or see his ghost mm -hmm. or whatever, I think makes sense because Bodine is also described as being such a character. Yeah. Right? This kind of like... Uh, I guess chaos neutral outlaw type. Yeah, I, I also think Bodine sort of is the other possible Pinchon avatar yeah. in the text. Like I know it's Slother is the obvious one, but I also think Simon Bodine has some Pinchon to him um and, as well. And I think Osby Feel too. Is it yeah. Osby Feel or Pirate Prentice who has like the desk with all the stuff that you can imagine Pinchon having read? Like yeah, a history yeah. of the Herrero people. Like mm -hmm. I feel like there's a couple of characters in the counterforce with whom Pinchon could be yeah. I, I guess identified or as a surrogate. What else should we talk about? I wanted to ask you about a quote that says there never was a Dr. Yomph. Yomph was only a fiction to explain what he felt so terribly, meaning Slothrop, so immediately in his genitals for those rockets. Yes. So that is a kind of thing where uh, it's said by someone called Mickey Work. Mickey Wurtzy Wurtzy Wurtzy. Yeah, I know. There's a couple of fucking names in this section. Yeah. Um, I I don't think that like in the narrative that's true. That no. like Doctor Jomph is a thing that Slothrop has kind of explained in his own psychology. I think that's a case of someone after the fact when Slothrop has become this kind of object of study mm -hmm. that people can explain away. First of all, Slothrop goes to his grave, does he not? Yeah. And the existence of Jomph is independently verified by mm -hmm. Franz Pokler. Sure. So if you want to read this in like a strictly kind of you know hermetic narratological sense, mm. there's evidence. Of, I yeah. don't mean like hermetic Judaism or something. <laughs> I mean like hermetically, like the, the narrative is sealed off and what's happening sure, sure. and it is true. Yeah. Uh, there is evidence of Jump's existence. I think it's just sort of gesturing at something that Pynchon is obviously invested in, which is breaking down the almost Freudian justifications of like Slothrop's arc, you know? Yeah. Like it's been established like, oh, he's this way because he was experimented on and he has this quest to solve his origins and therefore you know almost achieve a Jungian actualization or self-awareness right. um and mickey workstreet workstreet is sort of saying like listen all that stuff is bullshit what else should we nothing onto? i mean I, obviously the fool thing reminds me of the back of sergeant peppers where paul has turned around and it's like oh maybe paul's dead Da, 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 da. What else? Um, oh, we, I, I, that is a real album. Did I talk about that? Yeah, we, yeah, you didn't talk about that. It's a, apparently it's a real album. Well, it's a real. They're a real band. The um, Fool is a real band. Yeah, they were like a Dutch design collective, mm -hmm. uh, and the band's record was produced by Graham Nash. 
who of course we all know from Crosby, Sills, Nash, and Young, and the Hollies. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's like a psychedelic folk record. The first USA single from The Fool was titled Rainbow Man. Rainbow Man. Well, you had something to say that I... Okay, well, it kind of gets to like... Okay, so first of all, yeah, this is the final part of the book. Uh, I reread it yesterday out loud, which I found very rewarding. Mm-hmm. And it's like, there's a cathartic feeling when you're reading it because there's parts of this where uh, it the book is as baffling as it has ever been. Mm-hmm. And I guess the catharsis is that it's over. Yeah. <laughs> so it's, I, I think that this part is like amazing and I love reading it. And I, mm-hmm. I love when Pinchon gets into that mode where it kind of feels like the prose is just running away. Mm-hmm. Uh, I find it so exciting, but the way that he sort of like manages that tension, pairing these sort of little vignettes with the ascent of the rocket, which in the narrative has already happened. And then doing this thing where he cuts into again, what at the time of the book would have been the present tense. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it's just incredible. But the thing that I wanted to bring up is well, like, why? Why? Why do I why find is it incredible? Why is it incredible? Because it does that thing. Okay, I was thinking about this the other day uh, when I was explaining the band Poison Ruin to someone, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. where it's like, okay, if you, I don't know if you like that band or not, but I forget. They're, they're like a. Okay, so this is this is leads to what I'm saying. I was like, I was hardcore like, band. Right? I, yeah, I was like, yeah, they're kind of like hardcore, but they have like metal guitar solos, and there's like some dark synth stuff, and it's the kind of thing where it's like when you describe it, it sounds annoying. Yeah. But the effect of it is not, and like that band manages to like harmonize all those influences in a way that seems totally natural and not like a put on. Yeah. And I feel like that about everything that's happening in this part of Gravity's Rainbow and more or less in the whole book, which is that whenever it's trying stuff or it feels like it's experimenting or it sort of zigzags into these places, like the stuff with Richard Schlub in front of the Orpheus, it, the way that it feels so natural and controlled uh, is to me basically unlike anything I've read in a book. Okay, I think it makes sense for this episode because it's the last episode and because the ending of the book is like so confusing and left open to interpretation, I suppose, to kind of, I think, just talk about what we make of it. Like of the ending or of the entire novel? Of the ending and of the entire novel. Uh-huh. And I want to point out a couple things which just occurred to me in my last reading. Point them I, out, baby. So I used to always think that the rocket that uh, is dangling over the theater in the last pages uh-huh. is supposed to be the zero, 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 zero. And that Weissman's plan has somehow worked. The rocket with Gottfried strapped to it has transcended space and time and perhaps also the dimensional space of the narrative Mm -hmm. in the sense that like in the same way that we talked about the foundering or floundering four section where Slothrop enters the audience and sort of breaks that fourth wall. I've always read it as like the rocket is literally coming into the space of the reader. Yeah. Which is a thing that you can kind of like depict in movies a bit easier. I was actually thinking it would be really funny if somehow Viking or whoever first published this book was able to do like a Mission Impossible thing where they like rigged the book so that the second you read the last word, it self-emulated in your hands. Yeah. Well, okay. So one quick thing on that, you know, I, I did notice again this time, and I don't know if this is in every edition, but conspicuously there is... (laughs) And I don't want to read too much into this, but like the last page of the book is a blank page, Mm. which like suggests a kind of explosion or detonation of the actual narrative. Now, 
reading it this time, and uh-huh. especially after we talked to uh, L.A., a.k.a. Answers in Tarot, about the meaning of Weissman's Tarot, it became totally clear to me that the 0000, zero, 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 zero doesn't take off. Or if it does, it, like, explodes and fails. Because mm-hmm. it says that it becomes, uh, like, uh, victim to gravity or something like that. Yeah. Not just in the Brenchloose way. Gottfried in the rocket is like, surely we can't have reached Brenchloose right now. Yes. And then... Also, this is so fucking basic, and I don't know why it never occurred to me, uh-huh. but the Zone Herrero are looking for scraps of that rocket to build their own rocket. So it yeah. has to have failed and malfunctioned. Right, right, so, right. So this idea that, like, you know, Gottfried is blasting off over the Arctic Circle and, you know, that Weissman or Blasero's dream of transcendence somehow comes true, mm-hmm. I always kind of just, like, took it for granted. Uh, and maybe this is just because I'm not an attentive reader or as I'm realizing, talking about this book, I like don't care about plots and what happens in books really. Uh-huh. I care about like if it's has cool ideas. Yeah. And if it's funny, that's kind of what I re- respond to the most. Mm. But anyways, so I think that the, if, if it is one of the two rockets in the book that is actually over that theater, mm-hmm. then it would be the zero, 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 zero one. Yeah. And it would be the sort of, uh, you know accomplishment of the program of world suicide. But of course, I think that like what is meant to be suggested is a more sort of explicitly cold war nuclear threat. Or just like the proverbial rocket. The proverbial rocket. Yeah. For some reason, that's the least satisfying to me. Like I want to know that it's one or the other. Mm -hmm. Um, But anyways, that's the thing that I wanted to point out. And, you know, if you've read this book only once, maybe you're smarter than me and just figure that out. But yeah, Weissman's rocket, I think uh, it fails and explodes. Yeah. So I guess for listeners and readers, my point is just that, like, even if you've read this book a number of times, there's always things that will uh, reveal themselves to you. And sometimes those things are fairly substantial uh, plot points. Yeah. I think that's interesting. Yeah. And I guess the other thing is, like, what do you think of my, like, uh, I don't meta, I hate that word, but like that kind of 4D reading that like the, the. The notion of the theater and like the book entering this present tense Mm -hmm. is almost meant as like a rupture of the space of the text, right? Like I feel like that that image of the crowd in the theater waiting for something to happen, it so – to me, obviously, just like implicates the reader, yeah. right? The restless reader being like, what's going to happen? What's going to happen? What's Mm going to happen? And then being killed. Uh, Yeah, I mean I think in some ways it's quite simply like a – you know, like a – I'm making obvious of the whole point of the book, which is that these events from 20-ish years ago are still loom over the contemporary American's head in the you know early 70s. Yeah. Um, in that way, it's almost like a warning, which sounds corny, like you were saying. Yeah. It's corny to say these things, but I think it's like, hey, you and the audience, wake wake up! Like, yeah. this is going to all this is going to come back around. Um, yeah. On you as you you know sit and watch your tube and. I also think uh, there's a sort of implicit implication that um, media has almost has become a sort of tool or weapon in itself. Um, You know, it reminds me of Infinite Jest and that like the pacification of the audience or the audienceification of the populace is like its own form of the rocket in a weird way. Um, Yeah. But. I, I can see that, but that, that one difference between Pinchon and David Foster Wallace, I mean, there's many things different about them, but I feel like Pinchon has, like, a genuine affection for popular culture. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, like, he loves movies, and, you know, the, pe- people people are like, where did he go in the 80s? There's, like, 
one crank theory that he was literally just like watching TV in a hotel room for yeah. like a decade. Yeah, I mean, I think it probably just more speaks to like the the reality of modern life, which is that whenever these catastrophic things happen, we we experience them. Yeah, as audience members watching the news, or right. Watching a, ver- a movie, you uh, know, that's how that's how catastrophe is experience that that's a very like baudrillardian idea that like mm-hmm. when he wrote about like 9-11 and the second war in iraq being essentially like televisual ideas yeah definitely i think there's something about that happening here i mean the fact that the sort of nixonian character mm-hmm. which by the way mm-hmm. and this is another question for you if it was not like written about in the literature around the book mm-hmm. that Jalab is supposed to be this like nixon stand-in would yeah, that no. be at all obvious to you no i almost write him as an almost offensive character of a L.A. Jew. <laughs> really? <laughs> Richard M. Schlub. Well, when it talks about, like, how he talks and stuff, and you can, if you know, if you're cued to it, yeah. you hear it in Nixon voice. And, of course, Nixon is in this sort of frontispiece or whatever it's called of this mm-hmm. chapter. Yeah, epigraph. Uh, the epigraph, that's right. Yeah. Um, but I also think that, like, you have to put yourself in the mind of a reader in 1973 mm-hmm. when, like, Nixon and anti-Nixon uh, mania was so a part of the culture yeah. that I don't. It might go over our heads now because we're 50 years on from that. Uh-huh. But I have to imagine that a reader in that time would have been totally cued into that. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I found myself having trouble engaging intellectually with this last chapter in the same way as I engaged in others. Right. I think maybe that's because I knew already. I mean, this is my second reading, so I knew what was happening. So there was no sort of momentum for me to turn. The, I did the sniff thing. That's okay. There was no more m- momentum compelling me to turn the page and find out what happens i know that there's no satisfying ending necessarily depending yeah uh how you i do think find satisfaction i do think it's a satisfying ending and i think it's thematically and intellectually satisfying i do think with long works the audience wants the sort of closure that like the wire often offered at the end of their seasons where get, it would bring like a song in and you get like a five minute montage like showing where each character McNulty putting his kids to bed. Yeah, yeah, McNulty <laughs> putting his kids to bed or like yeah. Lester Freeman <laughs> making a little miniature dollhouse thing or yeah. whatever. I think I think when you're so invested in a book like this, I do want to know where some of these characters, like what the future portends for some of these I mean, characters. I think it, ki- it kind of does this with like these little sort of like cut up chapters. I yeah. mean, the Mingeboro thing is this like, again, it's like it's like flashing back, but I feel like it's emotionally salient because it's describing this time when like Slothrop was a teenager courting this girl and like his sort of quaint middle American, upper middle class waspy life. Mm-hmm. And it's like, it's a nice sentiment to end thinking about Slothrop on, or even the idea that maybe he was like a ghost playing harmonica on like a prog folk record. I yeah. think is like befitting the character. The stuff at their plats, I think, is really cool. Yeah. And yeah. if we want to talk about a kind of like lefty anarchist reading of the book, this idea that like their plats becomes this place in the zone where like everyone is welcome and it's like an ad hoc society where like they cannot turn anyone away for better or worse. Mm-hmm. I think that is that kind of like model of the enclave that has yeah. come up a bit. Um, and then yeah, the stuff with like the rocket launch, I think, is narratively satisfying because all of that has just been like hinted towards. Mm-hmm. So the fact that you get this like built up scene where it's, you know, this kind of mystical ritual where Weissman is like jamming this kid. Also, is Gottfried a kid or is he an adult man who's I think young? He's a, I think he's at least a teen. Yeah, the impression I get is that he's young. Yeah. You wouldn't be bringing him home to mother. 
No. Let's put it that way. Um, well, you'd be bringing home to his mother, hopefully. Yeah. <laughs> here's here's your son back. <laughs> shell of himself. Um, but th- this idea, first of all, we find out what the Swartz Gerard is, which like, is that satisfying? I think it kind of is. Like, yeah. The, the book is about, in a certain way, this sort of like techno pessimism and the idea that like this young boy is basically sacrificed and melded with this space age technology to me is thematically relevant. Yeah, or that even like these technologies are never divorced from labor and human bodies. Right. You know, like the, we're never going to get to a point where technology is completely independent of the sacrifices of the human body. Right. That and then is necessary to enable its function. Also, like the very, very ending where like the restless audience is in a theater and you have this image, like it's so visual to me of like the rocket like dangling as if it's frozen in midair. Yeah. And then they all sing this song that's a kind of like anthem to preterition. Mm-hmm. And then what does Pinchon say is like, you know, there's enough time to like feel someone up between their legs or yeah. like it kind of gives this sort of option that could be either optimistic or pessimistic depending on one's reading. Mm-hmm. And I think that like I don't know. To me, that is what the book is about. Like, it sounds extremely basic, but it's like, we're all going to die. Yeah. Basically, existentially. Not only are we all going to die, but the people who we vested with controlling the world are hastening the apparatuses of our own death. Yeah. I don't even think it's existential. We're all going to die. I think it's, we're all going to die as a result of the actions of yeah, people. Exactly. And like, in a way, all that you can do is kind of like determine if you're like how you're going to react in the face of that. Yeah. And I do think it thematically ties to something we talked about last episode, Blissero or Weissman's sort of speech about how Western capitalist culture is like the apotheosis of it is, is essentially suicide. Yes. Like societal suicide. And and the last thing we see in the book is the rocket coming to destroy not, you know, not some far away people in London, but, People in in L.A., like the exact readership of this novel. Yeah. Americans, moviegoers, pop culture fans. um. Yeah. And I do think the movie thing is key. I mean, we've sort of talked about the symbolic function of movies in in the previous episodes. But, like, there is kind of an acknowledgement that between when this book is taking place Mm -hmm. and between when it's released, film culture and film going and, you know, uh, are arguably more like passive but collective form of pop culture has supplanted the novel. You yeah. Know? So the, the idea of like the rocket or the idea of the rocket destroying a theater versus like blasting <laughs> through the page or a library. <laughs> yeah, exactly. To, it, it like makes sense to me. Yeah. I mean, I think some people would say the ending is a cop out. It's like, Oh, it's like if you were struck by a rocket, things just stop. Life just stops and that's it. Right. Well, this is what I wanted to pivot to because I think it might be more generative. Okay. It's like basically like what we think about the book and what we like and don't like about it. Like, I, you know, I feel like we've talked about themes and ideas and like uh, how the book is working or functioning that I feel like we haven't really talked that much about about if we, if we even really like it. Mm-hmm. And, and I want to say like to go first, for me, the ending is satisfying because like I say – I don't even want to say there's no good way to wrap it up. I think this mm-hmm. is a good way to wrap it up. Okay. But for me, the pleasure of Gravity's Rainbow is, again, that ability to surprise and that ability to to zig and zag and that ability to, like, do things that when I read it the first time or even the second or third or fourth time that I'd never seen 
or read before. Yeah. Uh, and the pleasure that I get out of reading the book, mm-hmm. like I said, I didn't even know about the rocket fucking exploding on the Heath or whatever until just now. Yeah. But it's like the pleasure is in like the humor and the writing and the propulsion of the prose. And like, I think we made a joke in the last episode where it's like, if you like the writing in this book, well, there's lots of, there's lots of writing. Yeah. And like, I do like it and there is lots of it. So like, mm-hmm. I like how it ends because in my mind, the only way for it to end is just to stop. Yeah. You know, yeah. it, it, it can't be resolved. It's like, I was once told that, uh, any worthwhile project is never finished, only abandoned. Mm-hmm. And this reminds me of that old chestnut. I feel like my I, I always go to like the dumbest pop culture references, mm-hmm. but it's like the Sopranos finale. Yeah. It's like the cut to black signals the death of the character. Yeah. I think that, you know, whatever, you can pick that apart for a hundred years. No, but that's clearly, he clearly dies in my opinion. I think so too. Uh, because everything that you're being shown visually points to that. And I think that like what Pinchon is staging in the end is like, a vision of total apocalypse and like a vision of apocalypse. That's not people being like, you know, shuttled out of London or like faces and skin melting or something like that. But Mm -hmm. like a restless crowd chanting almost like they're begging it to happen, (laughs) you know, like they, they just want it to finish and destroy them. Uh, now I think that's probably like a little bit of a cynical despairing view of the world, but I think it's totally justified at any time in human history, but especially if you're writing during like the cold war mania Mm -hmm. and like atomic bomb nuclear arms race of the 1970s. Yeah. Um, for sure. Do you like the book? I know you struggle. Not, I don't, I'm not saying struggled. Like, yeah, you can't read, but, uh, that like you have had a hard time getting into it at first. Yeah. I mean, I think it's a different, you just have to surrender to it. Yeah. And it's a different type of reading experience than one, you usually cherish and hold close to your heart. Yes. Which is uh, a reading experience in which you vanish, your ego vanishes, and the text completely takes over you just because you're invested in the way it moves and the way the characters move through their lives. I think this is an opposite experience. You're, at least for me, where I was, I was forced to be so present in my intellect, right. my analytic capacity um that there was never really a moment where i completely lost myself to the narrative there were a couple and those were my favorite parts of the book um lyle bland section yes. the dodo section um why don't i live in this section is the kid who hates kerplak yeah uh where it's a story about a kid who's like averse to eating kerplak so his mother shows him how his maid and he's, he's, <laughs> he's totally getting desensitized to it but yeah. then at the exact instance that it becomes the thing he's yeah. bolted again yeah, 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 yeah. uh this is the thing why i love this book is it's like you know even if there wasn't the threads of a narrative to hang it off of. I just love the fucking riffs. I love the stupid riff about like the mother contest about like who is the most abusive mother. Yeah. yeah you know, yeah. I love the Lyle Bland pinball story. Yeah. That's my favorite. I love Byron the bulb. Uh, yeah. Byron the bulb. Yeah. So I, I do think that like a thing with this book and books like it is it's like, it is extremely demanding of your attention and your interest as a reader, but it does not necessarily reward those demands in a way that we're used to. Yeah. It rewards them in a different way. Yeah. There isn't a reward of, of escape, which I think is what most people associate with literature's power being. Right. I mean, yeah, it's more so like a, an esoteric text, like one of those, uh, 
medieval illuminated manuscripts that have like mysterious meanings that no one really understands. It's like it 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 appeals to your inner detective. Right. And I think the moments where it's most magical and transcendent is when it makes you think about history and the world in a way that you never would have if you hadn't picked up the book. And I do think its greatest achievement is that is it's it creates a new reality in your mind. Okay. Um, not the kind of reality of literature where you escape into the reality of the book, but a sort of collaboration between the reality of the book, the reality of the world you live in, a dialectic between those two opposites that results in this new cognition um, that you can sort of bring to any any other aspect of your life. And we're going to talk to a Marx scholar today, and I, I think now it's sort of maybe like reading Marx yes. or Hegel. I, um, I will say that, like, there's a couple things you said that I want to respond to. Okay. But first of all, I, I agree with you. And you said something about this on an earlier episode. And as a person, I'm extremely annoying to be around in the past couple of years because anything will happen or I'll see something like, oh, this is just like in Gravity's Rainbow or blah, 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 blah. <laughs> Which, like, when you're talking about a book that everyone knows is like a book that people pretend to read to seem smart, yeah. comparing everything to Gravity's Rainbow just makes you look like a fucking dork. <laughs> Please try not to do it. Yeah. I'm going to get divorced because of this. But mm. that's fine. That's my problem, not yours. Learn from my mistakes. Uh-huh. The other thing you said is like, uh, the way that this book kind of like functions in your mind. Right. Yeah. And this is the thing. And this is why I love, like I love pinch on. Mm-hmm. And it's like, I wrote about this a bit in the article I wrote for wired like a year ago, about the book's 50th anniversary. But the thing that elevates this novel and makes it just not this kind of like cynical downer, pessimistic book about the atomic age and about man's fateful suicidal relationship with technological progress uh-huh. is his imagination. Yeah. Like any time, and it happens five times in this section we're talking about at mm-hmm. least where it's like, anytime I think I have a handle on this book, anytime I think that like he's reached his limit of what he's able to do, he yeah. does something different. Yeah. And like the, to me, this is going to sound like cr- stupid, romantic and dorky Mm -hmm. but it's like that ability of his mind to think of new funny weird ways to just like express ideas is the thing that combats against the climate of gloom and despair and apocalypticism that he's simultaneously depicting does that make sense like the the vision of the world that he creates if you were to just describe it would be like oh my god brutal but also the fact that he can think his way through it in such a funny to me, like entertaining, mm-hmm. weird way is like what human beings can do. Yeah. You know? And I, I think like to even tease out what I was saying and what you're saying now, the idea of a gravity's rainbow consciousness that yes. sort of invades you yeah, and um, takes a hold of you. And it's not an escape. It's whatever the opposite of escape is. It's right. an obsession, fall, like falling a, down a rabbit hole. Yeah, or, or like even that. like a, a sort of paranoid frame through which you view the world. Yeah, but not. And I think paranoid is one way of looking at it. Externally paranoid. But what I think what Pynchon does that's so magical and that really invades you. It reminds me of when I was in high school and I was first watching David Lynch movies or other surrealist movies. And there would be narrative turns that Lynch would do that would make me think, like, look around my room and be like, oh, my God, like, what if I could do this? Like, for example, this might be not a great example, but in Eraserhead when he's like, there's the people living in the radiator or something, right? The lady in the radiator. Yeah, like chipmunk cheeks. So on first glance, it's just a person in their apartment and there's a radiator. Right. But like Lynch has this transcendental view of like the physical world that like anything 
right. look at. Anything around you could have its own point of view, its own life, its own story. And like if you just dissociate for a little and let yourself go crazy, you'll look at your radiator and you'll see a little woman living in there and da 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 da. And that's what Gravity's Rainbow is to me. And I think there's actually a narratological device that causes this consciousness in you, which is his use of POV. Yes. And his ability to be like, okay, I just mentioned um, Katya's ancestor. I could move on, but you know what? I'm Boom. not going to move on. Yes. I'm going to write a 20-page historical fiction about Franz von der this Ruf. very evocative Mauritania setting yeah. and Dutch colonialism and, and flashing into this bit of history. And I think I'll, the most powerful pieces of intellectual artwork that I've always loved are ones that allow the point of view to dissolve and allow for possibilities that reveal the the waking world and the phenomenological everyday existence of life to be not like this nodal thing where you're just in your own body, but at any moment you could completely lose yourself. You could float off into the past. You could float mm -hmm. off into the consciousness of the radiator in the room, or you could drift into someone else's consciousness. And I think that's what Gravity's Rainbow and presumably Mason and Dixon maybe does that too. Uh, yeah. Um, it's just like existence is not nodal. You aren't locked in your body like existence tells you you are. Yes. You can you can float and you can discover that the past and the future and the consciousness of a pinball machine or the yeah, stuff I, like that. I mean, we, we talked about this very early on when we were, or at least I was trying to kind of like describe how I think the narrative works. And it's precisely through that sort of idea almost that there's like a consciousness working through a circuit board and like the narrative will kind of zoom in and zoom out of like different characters and characters within their characters and within their memories. And I'm glad you brought it back up because looking back at something that I'd really like to stress, like you mentioned Lynch, which I think is like, a very good example. He's come up a few times, but I mean, the two artists to me, I don't know if I've talked about this before, mm -hmm. who Pinchon reminds me of the most are Terrence Malick, who I also love, mm -hmm. whose films are almost about this idea that there's a kind of shared consciousness that works through and almost like speaks through his characters. Yeah. Speaks through in a very different voice than anything Pinchon does. But the other one is another person I love who is like Richard Pryor. Like in a Richard Pryor joke, uh -huh. a guy will like kick a car tire and then the car tire becomes alive and responds. <laughs> yeah, you yeah, know what yeah. I mean? The, the, this idea that like the artist's consciousness can be found in everything mm -hmm. is a transcendental idea. Yeah. Like one thing that I want to bring up from this like William Slothrop song is like there's a line in it about how there's a soul in every stone yeah. that is a very encouraging idea like I don't want to impart any particular religious meaning to it mm -hmm. but compare that to the phrasing of when he describes Pointsman's narrow view of the world where it says he wants to find the stone determinacy of every soul yeah. it's a complete inversion right in Pointsman's mind the soul is something that is as hard as a rock and that you can calculate with those physical parameters in the mind of William Slothrop and the song that's being sung at the end of the book, mm -hmm. everything in the world is kind of like shot through with something. I don't know what it is. I'm not like a religious person, but it's like whether it's anima or grace or an emanation of the infinite. Yeah. And I think that that is kind of like, I'm not trying to put like too sunny of a face on pinch on or anything like that. But like that to me is a very charitable and uplifting and Boying view of the world. Yeah. And without totally. without that view of the world, this book would be like he would be David Foster Wallace. Like yeah. he would be a total fucking downer pessimist nerd. Yeah. You know? He's a he's a spiritual 
thinker at the end of the day. Yeah, and and we live in an age where it's like that shit is probably more hack than it was at the time. Like obviously the book is dealing with like the new age and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And like a way like you I mean I in life have had experiences that I would describe as like transcendent that exist outside of any enlightenment rational frame and yeah. that I can only make sense of with recourse to like certain religious writings, which doesn't mean that I adhere to those religions or buy in them, but they have a way of describing experiences that transcend the regular and the everyday or the nodal, as you say. Mm-hmm. And I think that like that possibility that something true and perfect and transcendent can occur. Yeah. <laughs> Why did I say it like that? Occur. <laughs> occur. Uh, that it can occur is like, is something that exists in this book and it exists literally. It's the the logic of the book. Yes. And it exists like in the soul and every stone, it exists in the idea of a sentient light bulb. Even something like a trope from cold war cinema, like the giant adenoid monster movies. It's like, here's something that gets brought up and then we flash into the consciousness of the reality of that thing. And this isn't even a real object in the real world. This is a constructed myth. Yes. But even the constructed myth has the power to subsume your consciousness and steal you away into some other liminal but pervasive existence. For... And, and by the way, the Nixonian schlub in this section is compared to the Adenoid. Yeah, yeah. So it, it comes double, back It doubles around. back on that. Yeah. So anyways, I think that like Pinchon is doing that at a narrative level and again, at a level of like writerly craft and pure imagination. Yeah. Uh, I... I know that I keep like bracketing that I don't want to sound corny and I'm sorry if it does, but I just, I really like this stuff, but it's, it's like, last episode. I know, but it, it like, it does make me feel like hopeful or optimistic. And like, as an individual, I really struggle with the idea that like the world and the possibilities for change and the possibility for like goodness or compassion or anything that's nice and decent at a basic level are being increasingly hemmed in and foreclosed upon yeah. that. Like to use a sort of voguish word, like the very, experience of existence is being like gentrified into like a beige gray sameness Mm -hmm. that is increasingly difficult to escape from. But you said that this book is not an escape and like, it's not an escape in the way that it kind of like relaxes you in that way. It's it's not like a Jack London novel where it's like, I'm on an adventure. Although Jack London also wrote an amazing book about like a suicidal depressive writer Mm -hmm. called Martin Eden, which everyone should read. But anyways, to me, to me, it's an escape from, he opens up the frontier, not just of the imagination, but like of, how we can conceive of the world. And if that is not a thing that you want from like literature and art, yes, then I don't know you. There are two types of escape. One is losing yourself into the story of a novel. And the other is losing yourself into like the possibilities of a novel yes. in a way. Yeah. Or like the, the infinite potential that a novel creates in its in in its power that it's just made up and it can do whatever the hell it wants. Absolutely. And that's what this novel shows you is that art is infinitely potential. Whereas other novels show you like life, like this is so much like life that you can escape into someone else's life for a little bit. Yeah. And that's not what this does. Yeah. But uh, but I, I still don't know what I like more. I still I might mean, like just to be you know, uh general in the Nepal in the in Kutuzov's army <laughs> in war and peace just reading about a battle yeah like, but come on war and peace also has these like insane deep philosophical riffs about like human social interactions <laughs> and about like the movement of the heart and stuff like that yeah, yeah, like yeah. it's not like Tolstoy is just like recounting battles I mean to me that's like the least interesting no no, no 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 but, but it's like it's recounting 
what it's like to have been a human with loves and yeah. enemies and in that era. Yeah. So and that's that speaks to me as well. And I and I think ultimately, like, if you've made it this far on the podcast, I presume you enjoy the book or even just the sound of our voices, which is even crazier. Mm. But uh Hi. I, I think that like it kind of comes down to like what kind of reader you are. And I'm not saying this in a way that it's like it's better or worse or anything like that. And I talked about this with Alex Ross Perry in the one episode. It's like I picked up a first edition of The Spy Who Came In From The Cold by John Le Carre the other day because they had one at the bookstore around the corner called Lot 49 Books in Fishtown, Philadelphia. Mm. Um, and it's like I will never read it. I doubt I'll ever read it. Every time I've tried to read Le Carre. Yeah, well, Le Carre is a little boring. Or these sort of like plot-driven books. Graham like, Greene is like the good version. Because Graham Greene's funny. Uh, <laughs> no, funny is not the 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 ultimate criterion, in my opinion. Not ultimate, but if there's a if there's a thing with jokes and a thing with no jokes, I'll take the thing with jokes every time. But anyways, mm-hmm. my point is like, if, when I start reading books that feel so plot-driven, I'll just put on the movie. And I love the spy who came from the cold movie. Mm. And, or I'll read the fucking Wikipedia entry. No, I, I don't, disagree with you. Well, it's a, again, I think we just read differently. And that's why I yeah. think we have a, a good dynamic. But, yeah, you know, yeah. I'm not saying that, like, all I read is, like, totally abstract fucking postmodern literature. Right. I've never been able to get through, like, Nightwood. I mean, I'd like to try again. Yeah. I never got through Finnegan's Wake. I don't know what I was getting at. You were getting at that this is more your speed. Yes. And I'm getting at that maybe it's not mine. Yeah. And that's all right. Well, this is why, as you've teased, I think for our second season, we're going to do Proust yeah. in some capacity. But the it's like, I'm like dreading it because I worry that it's like, not gonna, I'm not going to like reading it. Yeah. <laughs> I'm curious to see. Hello, Bobbies. It's me, Asher. Uh, this week, we had a very illuminating chat with our guest, Dr. Gregory Marks. He's a writer and researcher living in Victoria, Australia, and we wanted to get him on the show to help us break down Gravity's Rainbow from a Marxist or historically materialist perspective. It was an edifying chat, as John would say. He always says our chats are edifying. We got knee-deep into ideas of how Gravity's Rainbow relates to Marxian principles and the general dustbin of history, so... I'll delay it no longer. Here's our chat with Dr. Gregory Marks. Thanks. I'm someone who is definitely susceptible to Marxist ideas. I'm very interested in them, but I've never quite understood how it applies to literary analysis. So maybe you could just give us a primer about what Marxist literary analysis is. Uh, my, my, my phrasing of the question to you and something that I was specifically interested in it is is it looking for aspects of Marxist thought in the writer's treatment of his text, or is it trying to locate the writer's actual Marxist beliefs, or is it um, uh, interpretations of a text through Marxist ideas? Yeah, totally. So um, certainly a Marxist reading of a text can just be looking for sort of surface-level content that has some kind of uh, radical bent to it, right? Um, Looking for Marxist ideas in a text, Um, But I think if we're talking about Marxist literary criticism more specifically, uh, it's a type of reading that's really interested in situating the text in its uh, social, political and historical context, right? Um, So rather than reading the text for some radical content, we might use it to say something more broadly uh, about the moment and time in which it was was created. Uh, This is what we call like a uh, a symptomatic reading, right? You're treating the text as a, a symptom of something else that's happening in the background. Uh, 
and in that sense, as a product of its historical situation. Um, so I think, you know, when we talk about Marxist literary criticism, it's perhaps, to my mind, more useful to think of um, and in terms of what we call historical materialism as opposed to Marxism sort of stuck to this one thinker, Marx. Right. Uh, historical materialism being uh, sort of a theory of history is made up of material forces. Uh, and these material forces include things like culture and ideas, which we typically think of being non, non-material, but which still have some kind of material grounding in, in how they come about. What are the sort of m- most common Marxist ideas that factor into a Marxist reading of a text? Yeah, like um, I'm going to say there's probably two key ones to my mind. Uh, the first is the big one, uh, ideology, mm-hmm. um, which is not only meant in the sense of you know false consciousness as uh, ideology is sort of not properly grasping the truth of things, but we mean in the sense of denoting kind of political structure of thought. So a structure that precedes thought and determines the possible shapes that it can take. Mm-hmm. Uh, so in this sense, it's not really uh, a way of just cleanly exiting from ideological thought in the way that you might go from false consciousness to true consciousness. Mm-hmm. Rather, it's a question of the production of new structures of thought and the making possible of new types of thought. Uh, this is where a bit of the old you know, dialectical reasoning uh, is useful because uh, this structure is not necessarily self-consistent. It's contradictory. And the task of dialectics is to show how these contradictions are maintained within a unified structure mm-hmm. uh, and maybe even how they sort of break down and uh, and push the structure onto, onto new forms and new shapes. I wanted to ask about that sort of formal element in particular, because I know from reading a bunch of the kind of uh, Frankfurt School post-Marx thinkers, I know that like a, a thinker like Adorno is a very hardline formalist, right? Hates any sort of like popular culture anything uh, because, you know, big band jazz listens for the listener and things like that, right? So I, I'm wondering when we focus on formal dimensions, which may be pertinent to Pynchon because his writing is very formally rigorous and experimental, how we can harmonize that with a sort of more traditionally Marxian idea of trying to facilitate a mass group consciousness uh, among people who aren't intellectual mandarins. Yeah, totally. Tricky well, one. <laughs> I will say, look, in defense of Adorno, like his essay on jazz, it's mainly, if you look at the songs that he talks about, it's all sort of swing stuff from the 30s mm-hmm. that, like, it's it's not Charles Mingus, it's not particularly good. And I think right. this is, like, this is the substance of what, like, Adorno um, is looking for, in, even in, in mass culture, which he's not sort of unambiguously critical about, right, is he's more of, a, I think, an avant-gardist, right? He knows that there are these other forms of art possible, forms of expression that are possible, but there's something about mass culture which prevents those new forms from occurring, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, you know, for Pynchon, definitely there's this similar type of experimentation, but it's an experimentation that's not really directed, well, maybe not directed at um, an intellectual elite, right? There's a lot of goofing around, a lot of movie references, all sorts of stuff that typically mixes these sort of high and low cultures, right, to um, I think in a way sort of make these new forms of expression explicable uh, for people who 
don't necessarily you know need to to understand like Hegel or dialectics or what have you. Right. Um, the the songs and the you know Porky Pig references help the mm. medicine go down in this case, I guess. <laughs> you said that ideology was like one major frame. Was there a, and you said there were two. Was that the dialectic, or was there something else you wanted to mention? I, w- I would say the other key concept uh, for Marxist literary criticism is production. Right. Yeah. Um, not only. Uh, production of texts, but also how we can read production in texts as well. Uh, so we can talk about how a text is a product, either as a cultural artifact being produced within a particular culture, a particular moment in time, but even literally as a, as a physical commodity, uh, the book is something that has to be produced, circulated, um, and so on. But then we can also read how the text reveals its own production. Um, And again, this gets back to these sort of formalist questions, where if uh, the text is a product of a particular era, a particular moment, or maybe maybe a particular ideology, uh, how can we read the sort of limitations of the text, these formal limitations of the text, to understand something about that era to which it belongs? Um, You know, how does this era leave signs and traces even on its smallest products? Right. So essentially, it's sort of Marxist literary analysis is sort of looking at a text or a piece of media, trying to tease out what from the zeitgeist that the era from which that media came from, what maybe what is being not what's said explicitly by the text, but what is being said about the era. Um, mm from the text that the author might not have even been aware of themselves when they were crafting the text. Yeah, absolutely. And again, this is where it's a kind of symptomatic reading. Uh, The author doesn't need to be aware that they're expressing a symptom of something that is not just underlying the text, but it's underlying their own experience of the world. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, at this sort of largest scale, this thing might be, you know, a mode of production, you know, capitalism or some particular era of capitalism Mm -hmm. um and i mean that that's when i think marxist criticism can sort of get into the weeds a little um but the point is you're trying to to understand uh sort of big picture by reading through these particulars what what role does kind of freud play in this lineology because as you're describing it it's almost like uh the mode of production which is capitalism has this appendage which is culture which is almost like the subconscious of capitalism or it it, it can sort of uh express the unsaid or the unknown or the undreamt within that mode of production that the mode of production may be trying to advocate for in the sense of you know all the all those great books and movies that are like go to work uh <laughs> or could be trying to sort of serve as a cell you know, here's the little escape valve that uh, your dreams and fantasies can kind of escape through so that you can go back to work. Definitely Freud's in the picture there somewhere. And there's there's plenty of these sorts of uh, Marxist critics who are deeply informed by Freud. I think, you know, again, Adorno is one of them. Um, but you can also mention people like uh, Walter Benjamin or Ernst Bloch, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and and for, for them, this sort of criticism, like, does actually take the kind of form of, like, dream reading, Right where the literary text is taken as a kind of you know, maybe unconscious expression of a wish, right, um, whether of fantasy or something deeper, uh, that can't quite be fully expressed in the terms of the day. And so, I mean, this is usually they'll say that, like, this is uh, looking for traces of a kind of utopian 
imagination, right? Mm -hmm. There's some other world that's imagined or maybe not quite imagined as possible, uh, and the slippages and contradictions in the present world sort of give us a negative image of what that other world might be like uh, as these sorts of uh, unrealized wishes uh, attempt to express. So let's apply all that to Gravity's Rainbow. How exactly would one offer a sort of historical materialist reading of the novel? Uh, in what sense does it feel very much uh, like a product of and commodity that enters back into the culture in which it was produced and received? Yeah, well, I mean, I, I think, I mean, on the one hand, right, we can read it on, again, that surface level, right, where it's quite explicit in the way that it's sort of thematizing these these aspects of what control, predestination, what have you, in, in various modalities, either in these sorts of sense of technological control, but also these more mystical elements, which actually end up seeming quite interchangeable by the end of the novel, right? Mm -hmm. um, where these sorts of mystical elements seem to be one more technology that characters are using to uh, sort of manipulate the world around them. And I think this is then sort of felt more immediately in like the, the character of, of Slothrop, right? whose sort of paranoia quickly sort of opens up from this sort of personal history onto a sort of broader political history, right, where he's being sort of manipulated by all these forces of, of industry and technology all around him. But I, know, I, I think if we want to really make a sort of Marxist reading of this, we sort of have to go deeper again than that, right? Um, so, and again, perhaps that's where we get onto these questions of, of form, uh, where on this deeper level, it's not only the sort of content of sort of the narrative that's being told, but the way in which it's being expressed, this sort of constant jumping around in the narrative, the encyclopedic breadth of, of topics and characters, and all sorts of zany interruptions. Um, I think allow the, the book to say more than it says directly, right? To mm -hmm. circle around some uh, bigger thing that it can't directly represent, um, you know, in Marxist terms, we might call this totality or, again, maybe the mode of production or something like that. But at each moment in the book, we're only getting these little pieces of something that doesn't quite fit together uh, by the end, um, except maybe in some abstract conspiratorial sense. Can I ask a quick follow-up to that? Because we, we just kind of, like I said, finished our discussion of the final episodes of the book where it gets as strange and far out and as wide ranging as it does at any other point in the book. And I'm wondering at the risk of sort of, you know, answering on behalf of Pinchon, to what extent is that ranginess or these little kind of detours that you mentioned an aesthetic strategy in the sense that to tell the story in a straight ahead way would suggest a form of authoritarianism and control that the story is trying to challenge, right? So all these weird little branches and offshoots and the, the randomness or the things that a lot of people find annoying about the book, in short, uh, are actually there to sort of almost deny the spirit of this like stern-handed author who's fully in control. It's as if the material is exceeding Pinchon's ability to control it. Does that make any sense? Yeah, that makes total sense. And and again, I think that's sort of the problem that he's facing is that uh, he's not just trying to tell some kind of personal narrative about like a character who does some things during the war, right? Um, in this, we might compare it to something like Vonnegut's Mother Night, which is, you know, very effective sort of, I'm going to call it a, a tragedy about this sort of complicity of an American. Um, he's like on the, on the radio or something uh, who's sort of 
working as part of sort of the, the Nazi sort of cultural program of trying to, to sort of spread propaganda and so on. Um, it's a very effective novel, right? But it is pretty straightforward in terms of the themes that it's putting across and the, the, the narrative that it's giving us, right? Um, but I think like Pynchon, on the other hand, is like looking at this far broader and far more nebulous complicity uh, between uh, American and uh, business and political interests and the Nazi war machine, right? I mean, on the one hand, it's treated as a you know conspiracy in a kind of nebulous sense, but on the other hand, we get these very uh, particular and concrete elements uh, which show these uh, there's this web of connections between uh, the sort of various uh, industrial and and uh, and research projects. Uh, on one side of the war, connected with those on the other, right? Um, and all these characters who, you know, um, like what's his name, Jampf, who on the one hand is sort of has taught all these Nazi scientists about the production of various technologies and on the other hand has gone to the States to, uh, you know, start a business and, and, and make big bucks, right? Mm-hmm. Um so we get this sense of like this perpetuation of, of like fascist organizations under new names at this very end moment of the war, right? Going into the Cold War. Um, and it's something that, I mean, on the one hand, it's it's very clandestine to some extent, uh, and very sort of shadowy and hard to piece together all of these connections. Um, but on the other hand, there's something quite direct, I think, that Pynchon is getting at. And I think this is where he really excels, right? Because you know, you could perhaps tell a story which is simply listing out these sorts of connections. But on the other hand, by leaving some of these gaps, by presenting it to us in this, presenting it to us in this fragmented way, mm-hmm. uh, it's actually left a bit more up to us as readers to really get a handle on uh, this these connections and this this complicity that Pension is is trying to get across to us. I wanted to ask you if if you had a read on. Or at least if you have a theory about wh- what Pynchon's personal sort of... We know he's a leftist. I mean, uh, that seems well established. I don't know that. But he seems to be very much against systems and... Wait, sorry. Where is that well established? Like, <laughs> in his, Okay. okay. Let, all let, right. Whatever. I, no, no, no. But I'm serious because like, there's, there's a way to read all these themes and ideas compounded by his own personal isolationism and abstention from society mm-hmm. as a form of crank reactionary thought. Is there not? I mean, like, why do we assume that he has leftist or anarchist sympathies? Well, but if you're being reactionary against reactionaryism, are you a reactionary or are you a leftist? I, I don't know, but I, I'm just saying that I do think there are certain people, including Asher, who re- who read the books that way as if it's implicit. But as a reader of Pinchon, I don't think it is, and I'm sympathetic to all these ideas as well. I'm just saying that, like, uh, yeah. Uh, well, do, well, before I go further, do you have a response to that? <laughs> I, okay, so yeah, first of all, like I will say that I think there's one like a concept that I would take from Marx's literary criticism that I think is useful for explaining these political ambiguities mm-hmm. uh, in authors in general, right, which is the notion of symbolic action, right, or narrative as symbolic action. Mm -hmm. Uh, Because when we read these sorts of texts, we might be looking for sort of an explicit and coherent political stance, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, We want the author to just say, I believe this, I believe that, this is where I stand. But because they're having to tell a narrative in which there's all sorts of conflict, all sorts of uh, 
incompatible elements that somehow need to be sort of smooshed together into one narrative that somehow holds together. Yeah. Uh, they sort of have to take a few shortcuts, right? And so what we end up seeing is, uh, and again, this is a type of maybe even Freudian dream reading of narrative, where narratives are in some way expressing, uh, again, these contradictions within an ideology that can't actually be resolved in fact. Um, one of the sort of key examples might be 19th century romance fiction, where there'll be um, some kind of affair between someone of a lower class and someone of the upper class. And for this story to sort of fit together and like not fall apart, uh, they, the two characters can't actually get together at the end because that would mean sort of contravening uh, the actual reality that's meant to be depicted. Mm -hmm. And so the solution in these novels is that uh, one of the characters typically dies at the end and the other is left with the sort of memory of them, right? So we have a kind of symbolic resolution that is attempting to get at something that's not actually fully explicable uh, in the era in which it's it's written. Um, and I think writers like Pynchon, especially in their later works, right, where we where they're quite developed as a writer, but they've also maybe left a lot of the sort of practical politics behind as they've pursued a writing career. I think they still are attempting to sort of make sense of these contradictions, um, regrets, resentments in regards to the political realm uh, and attempting to resolve them in some way in their fiction, um, but always in a way that, that that's ambiguous uh, and, and uncertain, I, I think. Does that make sense? Yeah, I mean, well, the reason I wanted to ask you about it was because it's just something I struggle with as someone who's like wanting to teach themselves about Marxism and communism is the idea that, and, and something that Pynchon, I think we can, at least I clearly see, is that he's very skeptical of mass systems in general and system, especially systems of control. And I feel like it's it's sort of taken on fact that you can't at least you can't be a communist if you don't believe in a massively planned economy and in general just mass systems to help you know produce things in the most ethical and equitable way possible for the worker is is that true can one be a communist and still be skeptical of mass systems of production or systems I, of control i was going to say to yeah like what is more of a system than like a leninist planned economy with like a 10% vanguard that controls everything i think it can make sense to think of pinchon almost as like an anarchist in the way that he depicts spontaneous communities and stuff like that but there are plenty of right wing anarchists and like anarcho capitalism is like an entire field you know so uh i just don't want to like take for granted that he's a leftist i mean this is like a kid born of rich conservatives who worked for the heavy weapons and Industry and then spent the rest of his life inside of an apartment watching television. He's not exactly Leon Trotsky in my mind, I don't think. So, okay, I think there are three questions there. Mm -hmm. Firstly, can you be a communist and suspicious of systems? I'm going to say yes, because, I mean, I think we can draw a distinction between overt political structures of, you know, sort of so-called totalitarian political systems, right, and the more diffuse and maybe even more insidious in some ways forms of control that that we find under um, in, in, or in capitalist societies, right? The sort that, I mean, Pynchon is looking at here are these sort of forms of market control, forms of subliminal control, um, 
which are not actually easily easily named, right? Um, and so it's not really a sort of direct political control uh, that we find in, in Pynchon's novel where it's some guy giving you orders, what have you. Um, but, I mean, probably the big drama for, for Slothrop is actually not being able to name who it is who's giving him orders. The other question would be that, yeah, I mean, I do agree that Pynchon, to my mind, is more of an anarchist, right? Um, and with all of the ambiguity that comes with anarchism or, I mean, what could be called uh, social libertarianism in America, right, which mm-hmm. does absolutely have its reactionary wing. Um, but I think this is something that Pynchon is quite also quite uh, forthright about, that his sort of hang-ups about anarchism as a movement, right? If you look at um, one of his, I mean, maybe it's not particularly recent these days, but one of his more recent novels, Against the Day, uh, it's a whole sort of family epic about anarchists, um, about a sort of family of anarchists and as they're sort of spread across the globe, losing contact and regaining contact with one another. Um, and it's therefore really about like these hang-ups with anarchism, right, with the, the legacy that this, this family is saddled with uh, by their, you know, bomb-throwing father, right? So, I mean, I think that's where Pynchon roughly stands in terms of his own I think more explicitly stated politics. Um, But, I mean, personally, I think, like, to stand the question on its head, I think that to not only be sceptical of systems of control, but to be outright critical of systems of control, you do almost have to be a kind of Marxist uh, because the ambition of Marxism is to arrive at an adequate understanding of what these systems are and what they actually entail, right? We don't want to be talking about system in some abstract sense, uh, you know, the sort of capitalised they that Pynchon talks about so much. Right. Um, because, because this is sort of essentially unrepresentable. Uh, instead, we want to be able to get a, a, a real sort of conceptual grasp on the totality of these forces um, to make them really explicit and, and uh, make it possible to act upon them, uh, you know, in, in the way that they've sort of been acting secretly and subliminally upon us. I wanted to throw another kind of uh, Marxian or historical materialist idea at you, which I think weighs uh, and hangs over gravity's rainbow, which is like reification, right? Especially Mm -hmm. in the way that Pinchon regards stuff like the tarot or the Kabbalah or the very notion of a counterforce or a counterculture. Um, Maybe I'm cynical and maybe it's not him, but I read a, a spirit of defeatism in here, right? That there will be these moments where we have access to the levers of power, but we always miss those moments, right? In the last pages of the book, Superman and all these guys, they arrive too late to stop the rocket from taking off. These historical moments come and go as fast as they can. Uh, The only way for Slothrop to escape being a subject of ideology is to literally disperse and no longer be a character in the book, which I think is Mm -hmm. obviously brilliant as a literary flourish, but to me is not... uh, indicative of an optimism or a sort of programmatic structure for how to actually combat those forces. Do you see this kind of like defeatism in Pinchon? Is the narrative of Gravity's Rainbow ultimately like a bit of a downer that these systems, these forces will always be too big, too baffling, and instead of being able to change them, all a human being can hope to do is basically drop out? Yeah, sure. So I think, again, this gets back to this question of maybe on the one hand, this utopian possibility, but also this need to 
give a kind of symbolic resolution to the narrative, right? Mm-hmm. Where on the one hand, we do have these sorts of this fragmented sense of another world that's possible, you know, as much as it's already a kind of fantastical old history take on the Second World War and, and immediately after, for the counterforce to actually be realised in the novel, it would have to totally delve into the realm of fantasy, right? We would be presented with uh, another version of the 1940s which never actually materialised, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and you'd be reading some kind of Harry Turtledove old history, right, in which... Please, God, uh, no. <laughs> I don't want to read that. <laughs> right, in which, in which the hippie, hippies somehow show up and, and win the war, right? McGovern um, wins. Warren Beatty, vice president. Yeah. <laughs> So for the for the novel to really work as a narrative, it actually has to like shy away from those truly fantastical possibilities, right? I mean, I think I would agree that Pynchon, at least in his early writings, is something of a pessimist. Mm-hmm. Um, in I mean, sort of the three early novels that he writes before his sort of decade long hiatus, uh, V, Gravity's Rainbow, uh, and The Cardinal at Forty Nine. All three of these novels are obsessed with like the idea of entropy, right? Of systems constantly losing energy, not being able to actually achieve uh, sort of a sustainable uh, liftoff, uh, and constantly coming back down to earth, decaying and, and falling to pieces, right? Um, and the utopian possibility, I think, in, in these books really hangs on some kind of I mean, what you might call it, like a negentropic principle, something that's able to escape those forces um, uh, or escape those sort of laws of nature that that everything must decay and that the more complex the system is, uh, the more uh, sort of uh, chaotic it must be. However, I, I do think that as much as his later books, you know, are sometimes a little less radical than the early works, I do think they end up in a more optimistic position. Uh, and you can look at the sort of role of like uh, family structures, bizarrely, in, in novels like Mason Dixon or Against the Day, which they actually end on these sort of sorts of beautiful moments of of grace and reunion, right? Mm. Um, which, I mean, you might ask whether this role of the family unit in Pynchon's late fiction is itself a kind of conservative turn or whether it's simply grasping onto some kind of community, the only community that seems to be left in his fiction. But absolutely, this this I don't think is present in Gravity's Rainbow. And uh, I, I, I do think it, it's quite a pessimistic text in terms of uh, its worldview and what it's what it's able to say. Well, well, Inherent Vice was accused of being very nostalgic in a negative way, but I almost think that it's a revision on, on Gravity's Rainbow in these early novels in the sense that like, well, no, maybe we can't sort of unseat the Nixon regime, but we can have positive, helpful relationships with the people in our immediate orbit. And I can go save my ex-girlfriend and and build these kind of like enclaves. You know, you, you mentioned that part of the idea uh, in Marxist analysis is this idea that there is no outside to capitalism. But I think what we see and pinch on is that even if that's true, we can burrow into these little holes within it and and live sort of alternatives where we'll still have to leave to buy gas and groceries, but you know uh, we can kind of subsist in a, a you know a radical alternative way somehow. Despite that, something I think really comes through in like Gravity's Rainbow as well is this sense of the commodification of, of life itself, right? The way in which uh, people become almost like machines that. Uh, are being manipulated, being bought and sold, uh, and being uh, used to produce new and more more complex, more more hellish contraptions. Um, 
And again, I think this is perhaps like the view of your view of totality that Pynchon has by the end of the novel in which uh, everything is under control. Everything is uh, a part of this, this grand machine, uh, which we can't quite see directly. Uh, although we can see uh, perhaps one part or another at certain key moments. It was really, it seemed really important to me to get someone with your sort of background onto the show because I think thematically the novel deals a lot with Marxist ideas, ideas of production, but even just like in the book, like you have scenes like in the Mittelwerke where this place where people gave their lives and were enslaved to build the rockets that are the, the main focus of the book. So whether it be um, thematically related or just completely episodically, scenically related, I think that it's really important to have a discussion about this book from a, some sort of Marxist perspective. Obviously, there's all sorts of like weird little references to Marxism throughout the book, usually quite critical. Um, and look, I'm not sure if like entirely fair. But yeah, on, on the other hand, like, I mean, there's another bit in the book a little earlier on where there's like a discussion of like colonial wealth extraction, right? And there's mm-hmm. a, I think a critical aside about, you know, Karl Marx, who does, doesn't understand what happens in the colonies. He thinks mm-hmm. it's just accumulation of wealth, um, which, I mean, I, I think is a little unfair. Like if you sort of read Marxist writers, um, whether Marx himself or people like Rosa Luxemburg, who are really quite explicit about um, also, you know, for that matter, Lenin, right, right, who are really explicit about the role of imperialism and colonialism uh, as not only a, a means of, of wealth accumulation and uh, and commodity extraction, what have you, mm-hmm. but uh, really like one of the driving forces that made uh, sort of modern globalised capitalism possible. And what he says about this sort of connection between industrial capitalism and colonialism is really on the same page. Uh, and especially in his sort of uh, analysis he has of, of like uh, colonialism coming back to Europe, coming back to America in the form of fascism. I also think that the image of Marx uh, sitting inside, you know, lancing his carbuncles or whatever and begging his friend for money while writing about places he's never visited is a very Pinchonian image. Uh, so they have they might have more in common than not. But uh, Greg, if people want to find you, read more of their writing, your writing, where can they do that? Yeah, all right. You can well, you can find me on Twitter at the Wasted World, uh, and you can also find my website thewastedworld.com. Awesome. Well, we appreciate your time and insight. Excellent. Thanks for having me on. So if you made it this far, thank you so much for reading along and thank you for listening. Uh, like I mentioned, we're going to do some bonus episodes of interviews and sort of pinchinalia, and then we're going to move on to another big book or series of big books. Um, so thank you all. And we especially want to shout out our guests who lent their time and knowledge and expertise. Uh, they are Jordan Bim, Stephen Kinzer, Alex Shepard, David Cowart, Alex Ross Perry, Robert Bromkampf, Elizabeth Baer. Hamilton Morris, Noah Colwyn, Matt Chrisman, <laughs> the computerized ghost of Harold Bloom. <laughs> Fuck you. That was the worst episode. That was my idea. I thought, uh, it would be... I thought it was cute. I think it's cute. One person on Twitter was like, I liked all the episodes except this one. Mm. Keep it under your hat. If you don't like the show, yeah. go tell your pastor. I don't want to know about it. Uh, Jeffrey Seavers, L.A. Lubashang, a.k.a. Andrews and Tarot, and Gregory Marks. Thank you all. Thank you to all our listeners. Follow us on Twitter at Slow Learners Pod.
an email. I, I want to thank all the people have, who have just shot us an email. Oh, yeah, and, or voicemail. And said, you know, I what I would just say to tie it up is that this type of book almost demands a community. Yes, well said. <laughs> and uh, Yes, okay. And, 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 I, and I truly don't think you could get everything out of this book that you could unless you were talking about it with someone. Totally. And I appreciate you for that. And I appreciate our listeners and guests for that. I think you're absolutely right. I think the image of Pinchon as like this isolationist loser in a blacked out apartment is a very daunting, intimidated, intimidating thing, kind of a romantic thing. But one of the great pleasures of doing this season is like becoming part of, is that presumptuous to say, the sort of community of Pinchon heads? At least a network. A network, yeah. We you need know? to create like a like how they have a parrot head retirement community. We <laughs> yeah, need to yeah. create like a pinchin head retirement yeah. community yeah. where we can all just like smoke hash and I already do that. Yeah. You're out you're of a kazoo. Make, out of a kazoo. Yeah. Um so we'll see you guys all there when we retire. And I just want to urge everyone to stick with us for for whatever subsequent seasons we do because we're choosing things that I think are just as rewarding as Pinchon. And we also, I, I'm i predicting that we'll go back to Pinchon. Oh, definitely. I'd and love to do Mason Against the Day. Di- oh, Against the Day? Yeah. Okay, yeah. Or Mason and Dixon. I've just, everyone we've talked to has said Mason and Dixon is his best book, and I've never read it. Oh, really? It's yeah. my favorite of his for sure. Yeah. But uh, Against the Day seems really cool, too. I was reading a Twitter thread today about some Arctic exploration section. Arctic of it. spar. Yeah. yeah. That's uh, cool. I haven't read Against I like the, that. I haven't read Against the Day in probably a decade, but. Uh, it's like 30% longer than this, but I actually think it's a little bit easier going. Yeah. Mason and Dixon is like a pure pleasure to read. It's this, long, but yeah, it's, yeah. Not, it's not like dense in the same way. Right. Um, okay. We'll talk to you guys soon. We're not going anywhere. We'll have bonus episodes yeah. probably next week in a couple of weeks. Yeah, we love you. For, for real. Once there were parking lots, now it's a peaceful oasis. You got it. Was a pizza hut. Now it's all covered with daisies. You got it, you got it. I miss the honky tonks, Dairy Queens, and Seven Elevens. You got it, you got it. And as things fell apart, nobody paid much attention. You got it. Slow Learners is written and produced by Asha Dark and John Semley in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Original music by Asha Dark and Scotty Leach. Technical support by Raina Doris. Read John's Gravity's Rainbow Guide at www.gravitysrainbowguide.com. And remember, we love you.
Let's go.